Welcome to Brand Busters with your hosts, James Schwinn and Sean Lee. Together, we bust open the latest in CPG, retail media, and life, or whatever the f*** we want. And for today's episode, we got something special cooked up for ya. Extra spicy. Take it away, Sean. All right, all right. Everybody, welcome to Brand Busters Episode 4. Hopefully, we got some extra, extra spice for you today. Um, today, we're going to talk about a couple things we saw in the news that we found interesting, which was Lyft's flubbed earnings report. We'll talk about if it was uh, meant to be an accident or just some some corporate bullshit. Then we're going to talk about Target's new store brand, Dealworthy, that James is going to dive into. And uh, then we're going to get into a big topic that I've seen going around that I actually posted about on LinkedIn recently, which is the amount of Chinese sellers that are selling on Amazon and really all e-commerce in the US just absolutely taking over. Is it a long-term trend? Is it going to go bust? We'll, we'll cover it all. And then uh, James and I are just going to talk about how we stay organized with uh, multiple kids and demanding jobs and being an entrepreneur, or being in sales tips that work for us that may work for you. And uh, hopefully you can learn something and have some fun today. Take it away, James. Yeah. Well, first, first, the brand busters were out in the wild last week for a little uh, Palentine's Day. Uh, so uh, Sean and I, Sean was so courteous to invite me to a uh, country concert with uh, Josh Malloy. Uh, if any of you know me at all, uh, I do not listen to country typically. <laughs> I t- tend to go to metal concerts and hardcore concerts and go in mosh pits and crowd surf and sort, which I'm going to have to retire from soon enough. But uh, uh, ironically, it was the night before I had one of those metal concerts, so very much a clash of cultures. But uh, um good time i th- i think we saw uh, did we see rip wheeler there was he there sean i think so i think so yeah he was, yeah, we he didn't... was there I, I, it was pretty much just james and i and then a bunch of guys in cowboy boots and black cowboy hats so uh, a little out of place and I, I don't know if i would call it country it's uh i would call it outlaw country or oklahoma texas country so not the stuff you hear on the radio but you know my wife won't go with me. James was uh, lucky enough to be the person that would uh, go see some uh, yeah. hee haw music, as my yeah. wife likes to call it. Yeah. <laughs> I was the first person that didn't say no. So, correct. correct. Uh, yeah, hey, I tried to pull out a corduroy short shirt and uh, some boots. I at least looked uh, like I was attempting <laughs> to blend in, but um, just so, just yeah. so. <laughs> just so the <laughs> listeners have an idea, like let's just think little snippets of of each each song. So Josh Malloy's kind of hit breakout single is uh, Porch Light. And the cor- the chorus of that goes a little something like this. I'm not going to sing. I'm going to read it. No, you got to uh, sing it. No, I, I will not do that. It's too early. Uh, yeah, it's another hotel room sleeping on the floor. I'm hurting in the morning from the night before. Paid my dues. I'm leading up the road. I'm coming home, baby. Leave the porch light on. It's nice relatable yeah. you know you know nice like drink a beer song too uh sounds like i'm around a campfire even though i live in suburban cincinnati you'd think i'd live in montana by listening to this no tractors no she broke my heart uh no blue jeans so you know that i think the outlaw country does uh break away from pop country now shifting gears silent planet's top stream song is called antimatter and it goes something like <laughs> This aftermath, broken promises collapse, bodies lay like shattered glass. 
hold the pieces, feel how nothing ever lasts. With tunnel vision fading in, how I thirsted for the end. Pull me closer till I'm over my head. We are broken bodies bound for each other. In the impact, we become antimatter. Yeah. yeah, pretty pretty similar, if you ask me. Yeah, re really similar, really similar. Um, no, I, I know that. Hey, that's what makes the world go around, right? You got some, <laughs> some uh, you know, idiots like me that haven't been on a, a ranch in ever in my life and listening to Outlaw Country, and you got James and Moshpits over here, and then putting on a suit and tie every day. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I will say so. I, I have an Excel doc of all the concerts I've gone to, and it's over 150 unique bands. And uh, I, I definitely have some some scars uh, from some of these shows. But I, I will say, while people, most people are intimidated uh, by Walls of Death, which if you've never seen a Wall of Death before, absolutely go on YouTube, uh, specifically like a Lamb of God Wall of Death. Um, I have had a concussion and my nose busted open before, but uh, everyone is looks out for each other. And it's just one of those uh, nice cathartic experiences where you get to blow off some steam, but in a productive collaborative way, it's like sports, right? Yeah. It really sounds like, like a, you know, broken nose, uh, concussions. It sounds like you're describing some entrepreneurship, like my day to day running since he brought <laughs> yeah, Exactly. Exactly. Well, well, moving on from that, um, there was some really interesting thing in the news. It really doesn't have to do with deal with e-commerce, but we thought it would be interesting to, to all of our listeners out there. And for those of you that left, left us some great feedback in the Q&A on Spotify, keep doing that. We do read them. I think we got two comments that said, excellent. I don't really know uh, what was excellent, but uh, I'll, I'll take, take it. it. <laughs> but recently, Lyft just had their earnings report, Lyft, the, the ride-sharing service, and they released an error in it saying that their projected profit margin increased by 500 basis points and it should have been 50 basis points. And upon releasing the earnings earnings report, um, this press release went out and their stock immediately popped 35% higher. It was their best day since their IPO in 2019. So question for you, James, like given all you know about kind of corporations and me having worked at PNG at a publicly traded company, do you think this was some intentional uh, corporate bullshit or do you think it was a true and honest error uh i i think knows is where yeah <laughs> i i i market manipulation uh or just a gaff i again i think it's uh i i didn't look to see if any executive team members sold off any shares uh, after that pop so i, I think <laughs> let me let me go research that um and i'll get back to you um i, I think a couple things, uh, again, I, I don't want to, this is no, no accusation. Again, it could, it could absolutely be an error. I know I've certainly made errors in certain proposals or pitches that uh, I thought were going to completely derail a deal in certain instances, and it was, it was fixable. Now, speaking of market manipulation, like if you go back to GE in 2019, this is not a Harry Markopoulos debacle where he is claiming that you know, GE, he generated this 175-page report claiming that GE um, was uh, out over $39 billion in fraudulent activity uh, without consulting uh, the executive team members and also there being documentation on Mr. Markopoulos being uh, retained by certain hedge funds to potentially help with short sale activity. Great. But neither here nor there. Um, you know, listen, um, 
I think retail traders and institutional traders uh, these days, and probably for the last two decades since the dot-com bubble burst, um, care more about the narrative versus the numbers when it comes to the stock. Um, And uh, Scott Galloway actually really encapsulates this really well, especially in like more tech-oriented stocks and innovators, is if you tell a 30-something male he is Jesus Christ, he's inclined to believe you. The tech innovator class has an Achilles tendon that runs from their heels to their necks. They believe they're press. So this is, again, we're not taking pot shots here at Lyft. Could be very much an honest mistake, but uh, I think the trend with how volatile and crazy the market's been the last several years since COVID, but absolutely uh, the last probably two decades, it's, you know, maybe it was a strategy. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to call, I'm going to call some corporate BS and uh, fudgery on this one. I think spicy. having worked at PNG and having really even small companies, like a press release doesn't get released without at least probably five to 10 people reviewing it. So somebody catches that number. Um, again, may, may or may not have been completely intentional. Maybe everybody missed it, but somebody should have saw it. Um, those things get reviewed by the PR firm, by the person that wrote it, by the CEO. Somebody's looking at that thing and probably, a, you know, winking a nudge, just let it go out the door. The stock popped 35% when they, in, in all the algorithms that kind of trade on these immediately immediate um, pops of news, you know, that's what took it up. When they announced the correction, it only came back down 15 of that 35%. So the stock was still up 20%. Um, and, you know, 500 basis points over 50 is a, is a pretty damn big jump. So they still netted probably a lot better than where they would have been if they just said 50 basis points. And I, I do realize I feel like uh, basis points, like, why don't I just call it like half a percent and five percent? But, uh, you know, you get the deal. Um, so I'm going to say some BS. We'll never yeah. know. But uh, it's it's an interesting strategy for a stock that nobody's really been talking about for and, a very long time. Yeah, And, you know, we can't make it two weeks in a row without talking about Taylor Swift. So. As... It happens to be my personal favorite, right? <laughs> I went to the, I went to the concert. Speak, James is going to death metal concerts, and uh, you know I had like fifty yard line tickets to Taylor Swift. I, we're just not the same musically. No, no, but we complement each other very well, right? Um, exactly. So they did with that thirty five percent growth. Uh, Lyft actually cited and gave some credit to Taylor Swift because of the massive tour. Uh, across the country in the bump there, along with other stadium events like uh, Beyonce, U.S. Open, and football games. Uh, And I think the larger narrative is here is while Lyft is on the right trajectory, uh, they still only control 30% market share uh, in the ride-sharing app. So Uber absolutely has the pole position here with over 70%. Uh, Lyft is going to continue to kind of try to chip away. Sounds great. Well, we'll move on from... uh... Lift. Maybe we can uh, get ourselves a lift to another topic here. Oh, um, I see what you did there. Zinger, zinger, zinger. Um, interesting phenomena. Target just had a big announcement, James, where they are launching a value brand called Dealworthy that incorporates their Target lo- logo that's really going after the value tier shopper and trying to get them back in the door at Target, given that you know inflation's high, people are more conscious of money, everyone fears a recession. What do you think? What's is this going to be a boom or bust for Target going after the value shopper that they haven't really went after in probably the past decade? Uh, too early to tell, but I want to go boom on this, and I'm going to tell you why. 
Um, one, it's surely to tell because products just started rolling out to stores last week and are going to continue to do so into early 2025. So we, we, we got to see this through. Uh, they're going to span categories of beauty, personal care, electronics, and apparel and home. And we're talking real entry level. So when we're talking about bargain buyer, we're talking average sales price of $1 to $10, which is projected to be 50% lower than competing brands. So this will be interesting if, you know, my, my, you know, question is, is this more of a retention play for your existing consumer base to kind of drive AOV and kind of just throw in and drive kind of the, the basket size up? Or is this more of an, a customer attraction strategy? Um, and it's probably both. Um, if you look at comparatively, their other private label brands, Smartly, uh, they actually just kicked off a major expansion and reformulation initiative. Um, uh, so they wait, they discontinued smartly, but for up and up, they actually just kicked off this major expansion and it's going to cover 40% or 2000 products of that portfolio. And, uh, up and up is you guessed it, a step up in price point at 10 to $15. So now you have right. deal, deal worthy one to 10, you have up and up 10 to 15, um, in private label, which I had no idea, Sean, was, is big business for Target. Up and up. Every, every, every kind. Think of Kroger, everyone. It's, it is a freaking massive behemoth of a business. It's $3 billion, with a B dollars, just up and up alone for Target. Yeah. In their total private label business, total, if we're going for that final, if we're peeling back the onion, going for the last petal on the blooming onion, now I want Outback, uh, we're talking... Uh, $30 billion annually just for Target private label business. I bet, a lot of that's I bet a lot of that's clothing too, which makes a ton of sense, but that is massive. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, since you're at P&G, how, do, how does big CPG think about this, right? You, actually, you brought up Kroger, you brought up Walmart. Yeah. It's, no, it's no secret that these retailers have major private label brands. The FTC was all over Amazon on this yeah. uh, one or two years ago. Um, I mean, how do you guys think about it when they're competing? You're competing for shelf space and uh, trade dollars. And I, I guess, how's that narrative? Walk us through what that's like to make sure that they're not cannibalizing sales for what you guys are trying to accomplish in store. Look, I think it's gotten more sophisticated over the years. If you look at private label years ago, like there was no real design aspect of it. There wasn't a ton of branding that was put into it. It was truly the like value-based alternative. Your Walmart great value brand, um, where the package just kind of like rips off the leading, the leading buyer. Right. So people clearly got, it was a value brand. I think that shifted. I think target up and up is a great example where you're starting to use the premium equity, um, with, with Kroger, I think they have simple truth, the premium equity of the, the retailers at a little bit kind of mid tier price point for, for private label. And I think they're starting to take more share, but the, the reality is there's nothing you can do about it, right? A lot of smaller manufacturers might even make the private label for Target, Kroger, Costco, P&G. We didn't really do that, but there are a lot of category leaders that, you know, they'll make, they'll get more shelf space for themselves if they agree to also produce the, the, the value brand or the, the store brand for these guys. So I think it's something you just got to deal with and you got to hope that I mean, for the past, what, 150 years, probably even longer, we just don't have a lot of data on it, that consumers buy brands, right? Like we we buy into the the feeling, the identity, the, the intangible stuff of the, of the brand, and we buy into superior products. Store brands are always going to be that value choice. They're not going to be the branded choice. I think 
it makes brand owners be more conscious of their price point, the value that they're providing, that the consumer is getting a very superior experience when they buy the product. All those things, you know, can't go away, but I think value brands and and private label will continue to take market share. I think the other piece is when I was at PNG back in kind of the the last big recession when the the housing collapsed in in 2008 to 2010, PNG had positioned itself into premium and super premium. So we didn't have value brands or mid-tier brands in our roster. Our entire portfolio was on the the premium and super premium side of things. And we were crushed. Our stock price, our earnings, everything was crushed from about 2010 to 2016, 17, 18, because we didn't have that breadth of portfolio. Unilever at the time did. They had across all their categories, you know, they had degree deodorant, dove deodorant, axe, like they had all these spreads across their categories. They performed very well because when people traded down from premium brands, they would trade right into the mid-tier and the value brand, all within the same kind of revenue set for the company. We didn't have that. I think PNG still airs on the premium side, but they've gotten a little bit better. And I think if I were to look at this, Target launched Dealworthy because they've always focused on the 100K plus household. Um, they're, the Target and the Walmart shopper really don't overlap that much. But with inflation, with everything else, 100K households are still starting to pull back and trade down to value brands. Everyone's a little bit more conscious. I think that's a big problem for Target's growth. If you look at Target's growth over the past year, they're down 4.5% year, year over year in revenue, while Walmart is up 4% on a much bigger number. So Target did $109 billion in revenue last year over the last 12 months, and they're down 4%. Walmart did 638 billion in revenue and they're up 4%. So 4% on that is is probably like 25% of Target's total revenue. So um maybe not that much, but it's 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 pretty significant. So this to me feels like Target got caught in that thing that P&G got caught into where they didn't have any value play. Now they're trying to back into it and it's going to take 4 or 5 10 years to to see if they can get people to to catch up and come into the store and break that Hey, we're premium and we're only for 100k plus household mentality. I don't know if they're going to be able to do it. I think you called boom. I think I'm going to call bust. That the target shopper is the target shopper. I don't know if they're going to trade down to deal worthy. I think they trade down to up and up, but I think it's a completely different shopper. Unless they can get the Walmart shopper and the the dollar store shopper into the store and be net new like foot traffic. I don't know. We'll we'll have to see how it goes. But I think the other products that Target sells on on the shelf is probably too big of a stretch for the you know, the Walmart, the the dollar store shopper to come in and, you know, everyone has the joke, you walk in the Target or your wife or significant other walks in the Target and they walk out with a $300 bill and you don't know what yeah. happened. You have like 12 items in your cart. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think to your point, Sean, with the 100K household, I mean, the median uh, US household income is 75,000, right? So I think you're either they've either neglected or abandoned a certain subset of consumers or um, the reality is some consumers are going to be like shifting their spend. So even those that are above hundred K it's like, does everything need to be premium or right. do we have, do they have their certain staples or their brand of fee that they are, are non-negotiable that they're going to yeah. stick with, but for their trash bags or their hand soap, yeah. do they trade do down? They to, to save some points there. So and we, and we some... saw that we saw, we had tons of data at PNG that said in inflation and recessionary environments, 100, 200 K households still traded down. Even if they didn't have a money problem, it was more of a, 
like a cultural psychological thing that they would trade down just because they perceived that times might get tough. And I think that's probably happening right now at target. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to call a bust on it. I think deal worthy will probably go the way of their, the other brand that you store brand that you had mentioned from them. I bet in five years, this thing doesn't exist. They're doubling down on up and up and they'll get back to, you know, we'll come through this tough economic time and they'll be doubling down on uh 10, 12, $15 deodorants again, like they do with all the other new brands that they launch in the store. Yeah. Yeah. That is a fair point with the, this is a knee jerk, which a very slow knee jerk reaction just to recessionary times. And once, if, and when we get out of this, uh, over the next year or so, um, again, is it, you know, a moot point? So cool. That's great. Cool. Well, moving on to one more issue, we're going to talk about something I posted about on LinkedIn yesterday, which is Amazon for the first time ever. We've all known this has been going on. James and I kind of work and ran in an Amazon agency. We, we've been seeing this for the past decade, but Amazon for the first time ever just announced that they are heavily, heavily, heavily reliant on Chinese sellers. So in their earnings report, they've never disclosed it for the first time ever. Chinese sellers made up 50% of their entire Amazon 3P sales, which is an absolutely astounding number, given that this isn't the sales number, but this is the revenue Amazon brings in off of 3P is about 140 billion. And then another 47 million of that is advertising. So if you just took, you know, roughly 200 million Chinese sellers are making, or 200 billion, sorry, Chinese sellers are making up about 93 billion of that 200 billion in revenue that Amazon's bringing in. So they are intricately linked. I mean, my guess is that, uh, you know, the Chinese sellers and there's probably a Chinese e-commerce lobby that is uh, hitting it hard in Washington and hitting it hard in uh, Seattle, making sure that uh, that gravy train doesn't go away. But I I was absolutely shocked. I knew it was bad. I didn't know it was this bad. And I would call Chinese sellers on Amazon almost like, the US manufacturing moment or the auto industry moment here. Because if you looked at really from 2005 to 2020, you had a lot of US e commerce entrepreneurs that would go to China, Vietnam, and they would buy product, you know, find really great product, brand it, trademark it, sell it on Amazon, mark it up, make a 20 to 30% profit margin, probably not as much anymore because margins are getting squeezed. Um, you know, and they, they'd make good lives for themselves. They would sell their brand to aggregators, the people, it it was a great thing for the economy. Now the Chinese manufacturers that have extra excess capacity coming out of COVID realize that they could just cut out that entire spread, right? Like why sell to the U S distributor or middleman when they could just go direct to consumer and ship it directly into Amazon FBA, which they're doing now. And they can take large, lower margin because they don't have as high of a requirement and they can cut out that, you know the markup and the 20 or 30% margin that, that the U S seller was making. So I view this is, is kind of the Armageddon moment for Amazon only brand U S sellers. If this trend continues, um, we don't know if it will, obviously politics plays a big role in it. Let's say the presidency changes and somebody slaps a, a 50% tariff on Chinese goods or removes some of the, the friendly laws that, I just learned yesterday from from somebody that reached out to me after I posted and said, a lot of these Chinese sellers don't have to pay tariffs getting the goods into the U.S. because they're not trading title of it. 
But when they sell to a U.S. seller, the seller has to pay a tariff on that good, which is another expense that that these Chinese sellers don't have to to pay. I also read the same thing happens for for Timu and, and Xi'an in that they're spending more money lobbying in Washington than almost any other kind of industry combined to make sure that that law is is protected. So when money when big money is at play, I don't know if it's going to go away, but I think the trend is you're going to continue to see what I would call direct from manufacturer selling from through e-commerce in the US from from China and it's it's the same trend of when everything at Walmart started getting made in China and you know prices came down. I think it's probably a benefit from the consumer, but it's going to be a lot harder to sift through quality, what's good, what's not, you know. We talked about Stanley a couple weeks ago. Like, does this stuff have lead in it? Like, would you buy toys and let your kids play with them and put them in your mouth? I don't know. If, if there's not a, a U.S. entity kind of sitting there and, you know, worried about being sued and making sure everything's up to standard, I, I'd, I'd be a little nervous about it. But, James, I don't know. What's your take on the Chinese seller Armageddon? Yeah, here's how I see this playing out. It's the, the U.S.-based third-party sellers that... I don't want to say got rich quick or hoping to, but I feel like there was a trend there, right? There's a few people that kind of created that lifestyle business. It wasn't super competitive. The platform wasn't as sophisticated as it is now. Um, but they built that without really building like a moat or kind of that uh, that durability that's required with that brand identity and brand mm-hmm. foundation that maybe big CPG uh, yeah. they didn't build brand, they didn't build brands right they they sold trademark products exactly and so without the fundamentals of what makes a brand a brand i think they're going to feel the most friction from this they don't uh, they don't have a devout consumer base uh, they don't have these best in class assets a sound brand identity and let's talk about war chests here um, advertising revenue is not going down on any marketplace right now for all the major retailers it is going up so those unit economics and the margin availability um, is diminishing. And now if Chinese sellers are able to uh, circumvent this tariff, these tariffs that you're talking about from a title transfer. Um, and, and cut out the middleman, right? It, exactly. And now we also are having generative AI for image. Like, yeah. I, I think those are the those are the individuals that are going to suffer the most. Um, yeah. And... And, I guess, and copy, right? Because the telltale sign would be poor English misspelled words. Now you can have chat GPT write your copy for you based on a, a product page that's already written in English. Just rip it right off and and throw it in the chat GPT for a similar product. Right, right. And I think the trend here, I feel like we're it's it's interesting that between this and even what we discussed with Target and Deal really a lot kind of it's not private label per se, but there seems to kind of be this trend as um, consumers are going to shift. They're, they're shifting their spend. Some are pulling back out, right? But a lot of it's just shifting. So if it's downgrading certain uh, certain purchases, but upgrading elsewhere, staying the same, or they're shifting from products to more experiential services. If you try to buy any type of concert tickets, if we want to go full circle, full circle moment, considering we talked about music at the beginning of the show to now, ticket prices are way up, ticket fees are way up. Uh, shows, sites are breaking, Ticketmaster can't solve it. Anyways, end of rant on that. But um, there is a very, consumerism is alive and well in the US. And for those who don't know the exact definition of consumerism, it's a social and economic order in which the goals of many individuals include the acquisition of goods and services beyond those that are necessary for survival or for traditional displays of status, AKA keeping up with the Joneses. So, 
while we're all feeling the effects of, in, effects of inflation, I don't think it's going to be until we untether our identity from this, um, like what we own or these inanimate objects. I, I don't think it's going to affect the consumer. I think they'll continue to buy. I think the, the brands or the third-party sellers are the ones that, you know, pay the, pay the price here, literally and figuratively. Uh, and it'll be kind of an interesting dynamic to see how it plays out over the, the coming months and years. Yeah. I think both of it goes back to consumers want stuff as cheaply as possible. Inflation's happening. Target's launching deal-worthy to fill that consumer need. They want goods as cheap as possible to meet what they're, whatever need they're looking for. I think Timu, Shein, Amazon, or Chinese sellers on Amazon fill the exact same need, right? You can buy things there for 40% of what you would buy in, at Walmart or in a store because it's coming direct from the, the factory in China. And the only reason that market exists and is growing is because people are valuing kind of value or lower cash outlay over, you know, quality and some of the branded products. And I think that may shift as the is as consumers shift back to premium brands in the future. But right now value seems to be king and Chinese Chinese sellers are capitalizing on it. Target's trying to capitalize on it. And I think you'll see a lot of others kind of go that route as well. Yeah. What what do we always see the three legged stool of like speed, quality, price. So mm -hmm. cl clearly speed is necessary and this need it now. Uh, society and then price and or value. Uh, so that's kind of, that's, that's where we're at. Agree. All right. So we'll end on um, a non-news story. So this is just more James with, with work and life. I mean, I've got three kids, um, you know, from the, from 6am I'm going to the gym and, and packing lunches and dropping kids off at school to when I get home, I'm eating dinner and putting kids down to bed until, until nine o'clock every night. How do you stay organized throughout the day? There's, Everyone's got a lot going on. You do, I do, most of our listeners do. Like, what tips, tactics, and tools do you use to keep it all there, all together, and uh, not drop balls that are being juggled in the air? Yeah, I think the big thing is you have to you have to have mechanisms and routine in place because chaos is a given, <laughs> suffering is a given, and you have to make sure that if your tank your tank is full. So, first thing I do, uh, I try to get up between 5.30 and 6 uh, before my kids uh, start running in at 6.15 to 6.30. Um, I'll actually, so I'll actually uh, pray, journal, uh, and read for a little bit, make sure, not look at my phone, just kind of tend to like my headspace and make sure I'm kind of really set up for the day. And then from there, my boys, we really try to like do breakfast together, get them ready. And we want to really focus on having a good launch and a good land for the day. So I want to make sure I'm setting them off, which isn't always possible, right? Kids have meltdowns. They don't want to go to school. Yeah. Like I don't want to paint this picture that's, you know, perfect when sometimes it's just chaos. But what I find is when I take that extra time to kind of tend to my tank, I can now then pour from a fuller cup um, and, and give that to them and set them up for their day. Once I drop them off for school, gym, non-negotiable, that gets me um, any like the stress and everything kind of worked out. My mind is more active and then I can hit the desk from there um, and, and really focus. And I have, um, I really folk prior, I'm in sales. And what I really look at is for my existing customer base, um, what is it that they need? Is there anything that they, that needs addressed with the people that are currently paying the bills, right? They're the people that are, we're the trusted partner. They need to make sure they're taken care of first. 
Um, who are the people that are kind of mid-evaluation that um, have any outstanding requests? What can I do to add value to them? Not just ask, hey, just following up, but is there, can I look at a competitor for them? Can I pull data? What can I do to really make sure that I'm, I'm inserting that deposit? And then from there, uh, making sure, you know, from a pipeline generation standpoint, um, you know, what am I doing? What's on the event circuit? Uh, who are brands I think would be really great partners I can go to? Um, Closing out for the day, uh, again, we, we try to do dinner at the table as best as possible each night. Um, sometimes, again, that's them getting up and running around uh, multiple times. It's not a perfect uh, dinner, but we make sure we kind of check in on each other's day. We do some wild time, uh, which is just, I highly recommend doing this, especially if you have any boys. Um, we play some music, like they dance, they like wrestle, like we'll throw football like inside because it's cold. Just try to exert all that and then we'll calm down flashcards, reading, and then uh, get them ready for bed. So I think that's great. Long story long, really focus on your launch and your land, uh, not just for your kids, but for yourself. So that way you're not pouring from an empty cup. Uh, because if you don't fill yours up, like you can't, you can't yep. give them everything that you have. Yeah. I mean, I can't state it enough. I think routines, routines, perfect, right? Like I get up, I work out every morning, take my daughter to school, um, get coffee, usually we'll journal every day um, and really write down like, what are the like three things that I really need to get done for the day that if I got nothing else done, I'd feel satisfied by the end of the day that those three things were taken care of. And then, I mean, I've had ADD my entire life, so it's easy to get distracted by our phones and pings on your email, everything else. So what I've really found is uh, this method called the Pomodori method, and I'll kind of hold it up here. I've got an app on my phone called Focus Keeper, which I am not affiliated with, and it's a, a free app. But the whole theory is, uh, you know, deep work and focused work. So you'll do four sessions of of 25 minutes where you kind of write what tasks you want to get accomplished in those 25 minutes. It could be like, hey, I want to get the inbox zero in the next 25 minutes. You let it go, and then you get a five-minute break in between each of them. So in the five minutes, you can do whatever the hell you want, right? You can go scroll Twitter, LinkedIn. You can text your friends. You can get on a group chat, do whatever you want, watch a video. Um, and then you get back to it for another 25 minutes. So every morning, I try to get a good block of four or five of those 25-minute kind of Pomodori sessions where I can plow through as much as possible. And then in the afternoon, I try to do things that don't take as much brain power. So meetings, catch-ups, um, phone calls, things like that. Um, knowing that hopefully in the morning I got the one, two or three things done that I really needed to get done for the day. Um, but yeah, that's, that's my tip and tactic. I, I think James, everything James said was great. Like I'm not going to beat a dead horse with, uh, with the stuff that we do with our kids, but all great advice. And I think, uh, you know, we're not fudging earnings reports. We're, uh, we're harping on value brands and we're trying to stay organized here. So I think that's probably, uh, the end of our episode today. Any parting thoughts that you have for the the audience, James? Uh, no, I mean, there's, I would say being the sales and marketing guy, there's no reason uh, or way we're going to flush any, any reports. I do not have a CFA. Uh, I am not a controller or CFO, nor will I uh, be anytime soon. Uh, now, Sean, I guess, kind of runs a P&L for, for his company. So maybe we'll have to, we'll have to watch out for him. But uh, yeah, you never know. I'll try <laughs> I'll try not. To, I'll try not to do anything sketchy. All right. So that's uh, that ends ends. We've got a nice little outro for you today. We're getting a little bit more legitimate every single Ooh, time. Look at this. Whoop, whoop. All right. I haven't seen until, this yet. I'm excited. Until next time. <laughs>